0: Studio: A Memoir of Philip Guston by Musa Mayer, who is the daughter of Philip Guston, the painter. This is Chapter Three. It's called "Stern Conditions." And there's an abstract work by Philip Guston on this page called "Untitled," 1951. chapter starts with a quote by Charles Dickens. I hold my inventive capacity on the stern condition that it must master my whole life, often have complete possession of me, make its own demands on me, and sometimes for months together put everything else away from me. Whoever is devoted to an art must be content to deliver himself wholly up to it to find his recompense in it. Charles Dickens. It was my mother who found this quote. My father printed it in large letters and posted it on the studio wall over his desk, where it hung between reproductions of Giotto and Masaccio frescoes, which are on plate 70 of the book. How grateful my father must have felt that Dickens had so clearly articulated and, I suppose, validated the landscape of his renunciation. It was not my father's fault that he could not like not be a husband like other husbands, a father like other fathers. So the unspoken argument went. My mother tried to, in her general way to help me accept this, to know that it wasn't callousness or lack of love that was the problem. It was art. It's funny, I'm going to go to an aside here. What I have in my studio is an old, well, I have many things in my studio that remind me of what I'm doing. <laughs> but one of them is an old show announcement by my professor Hung Lu. Painting is on it. There's three painters, Squeak Carnwath, all contemporary painters basically. Squeak Carnwath, who I was on, who I was lucky enough to see her studio space and meet her when I was in art school. Hung Lu and Inez Storer And I love these paintings that are in this uh, flyer. It's a story called Story Painters, and they were at the Bedford back in 2010. And I hung this up in my studio on the side of my desk that looks into the studio. And across the um, explanation of who these people are, who these painters are, I wrote in big black letters with a black um, sharpie, my integrity comes first. Dot, dot, dot. Because I really believe that that's how I need to paint with integrity. My integrity comes first before anything else, before money, before shows, before going to an opening, before any of it. If I don't feel like it's the right thing for me to do, I'm not going to do it. So it's interesting. I can, it can be my own worst enemy though. Sometimes you got to do things you don't really think are the right things for you to do to get ahead in the world, but I've done okay so far. I'm going to continue on with my life the way I see fit. And that is my integrity comes first. Okay. So back to the book, it was art. It was thrilling to go to a or Orvieto for the first time. Philip said later of his pre to Rome year. Seeing the frescoes, the Uffizi, in Florence and Siena, excited and exhausted me. After a month of painting in Rome, I found I did not feel like painting. I wanted to walk the streets and feel free to think about what I was seeing. That's why I want to go for longer. (laughs) I painted for a month in Denmark. I also walked the streets only for about a week in Florence, so... (laughs) But this all brings back those memories for me. Seeing frescoes, the Uffizi in Florence and Siena excited and exhausted me. After a month of painting in Rome, I found I did not feel like painting. I wanted to walk the streets and feel free to think about what I was seeing. In a sense, I was searching for my own painting. It was a trip to Venice seeing Tintoretto, and and Titian, and to Paris, where I was very affected by by Manet and Cézanne. And going later to Spain and seeing Goyo and El Greco, it was seeing the painterly painters that made me want to paint again. That's what happens to me, too. I canceled the remaining year of my two-year fellowship and returned to the United States. Wow. I didn't know that. A photograph taken that year shows my father... He's standing easily uneasily in his high ceiling skylit studio at the American Academy in Rome beside a painting he later destroyed as he did all his work during that year except for a few spidery drawings of hillsides in Ischia. Hmm. In the fall of 1949 my mother and father came back from Italy and settled again in Woodstock He returned to the painting he'd been working on when he left review and began struggling to resolve its conflicts. But the work was not going at all well that fall, and so Philip and a friend who had himself been hiding out in Woodstock, Bradley Walker Tomlin, decided to take a studio together in New York in an arrangement arrangement that lasted only a few weeks. Tomlin, a gentle and soft-spoken man, whose calligraphic, calligraphic, calligraphic abstractions have since been widely acclaimed, died not long afterward, in 1953. Wow, his death off affected my father deeply. Philip easily found another studio on 10th Street, but it was sometime a difficult, but it was some time, a difficult year of regaining bearings before he settled, before we settled. For some months we stayed in Robert and Becky Phelps's flat, tiny flat, on Bedford Street and then at the Albert Hotel. I was six years old that fall. Yeah, so she was, excuse me for making a, another aside here, she was pretty young to be left alone while they were in Italy. I was six years old that fall. My memories of this year are as fragmented and sketchy as our living arrangements must have been. Already thrown off by the summer apart from my parents, I withdrew even further. That was the year we began shuttling between New York City and Woodstock. Those years during the early 50s were characterized by those trips back and forth, with me lying on the wide crib-like shelf, behind the seat, single seat of our blue 1942 Plymouth looking out the rear window. In these, in those pre through, in those pre through way days, the drive down nine west to the city took more than three hours. Wow. Boy, I'm full of asides for this time. This is bringing back memories. My son was four, five, he must have been five because he was in a kindergarten. He was five and I, he was going to school with me on campus when i was in art school in oakland and oh, excuse me he still talks about he's um how old is he now he's 25 he sometimes still talks about those drives back and forth between where we lived and to school and back through the tunnel he remembers those drives with the music we'd played in the car and the talks we had and I guess the scenery he saw as he was going back and forth to school at age 5, so it's a very uh, impressionable year, years for those kids excuse me, I think I might need to stop this will be a short cast for now because I need to put it away until tomorrow. So we had just finished. Sorry, I'm having to find my place again. Oh, we were, uh, they were in their 42 Plymouth, looking out the rear window. In those pre-thruway days, the drive down 9W or 9 West to the city took more than three hours. My father immersed himself in the New York art world. His depression had lifted, and the notion of painting as process began to obsess him he began painting the first completely the first completely abstract paintings of his career at first they were very dark dark reds and black dense subtle walls of flat at first they were very uh, flat igni- ignomatic. <clears throat> i need a reading chair i can tell when i come into this room i Lacking a good chair for reading, the other room. I just wanted to get away from the computer. <laughs> okay, let me go back to this. I'm not feeling that well tonight. I may not read very much. Okay, let's see where are we? He began painting his the first completely abstract paintings of his career. Yeah, these are the ones I really love of his, too. At first, they were very dark, dark reds and black, dense, subtle walls of flat, enigmatic forms, barely emerging from the void. But by 1951, the work had become spare and spacious, subtle markings in muted grays and ochres and pinks bare canvas began to appear drips and impasto that attested to a new spontaneity increasingly too a sensuality asserted itself in the paint surface a a lushness of stroke that belied the arduous process of leaving familiar ground and striking out for the unknown painting seems like an impossibility my father wrote with only a sign now and then of its own light. White Painting, 1951, was the pivotal work, the new beginning. I wanted to see if I could paint a picture, have a run, so to speak, without stepping back and looking at the canvas, Philip said later about this painting, and to be willing to accept what happened to suspend criticism instead of walking back, pulling out a cigarette and thinking, to not suspend my own endeavors, but to test myself, to see if my sense of structure was inherent. I would stand in front of the surface and simply keep on painting for three or four hours. I began to see that when I did that, I didn't lose structure at all. Finally, after his years of crisis in Iowa, St. Louis, and Woodstock, and his renewal in Italy, my father had found a new way to work. The school year would begin, for me, at the public school in Woodstock, or later when we moved down to the Maverick Road in West Hurley. When the weather became too cold for our primitive, uninsulated house, We would move into the city until spring made it possible to move back up again to Woodstock. In New York, I attended the old PS41 on Bedford Street in the village, then not the model public school it is now, but a drab, overcrowded place where children were crammed two to a desk. Hmm. That's interesting. Built in the late 1850s, 51 West 10th Street, where we lived for several years, had a venerable history. The studio building, designed by Richard Morris Hunt, was the first building of artists' studios in New York City. In the last years of the century, it became a clubhouse of the Hudson River School, housing Winslow Homer, Frederick Church, and scores of others. We were among the first, sorry, we were among the last of its tenants, for it was demolished in 1954. Our apartment there was a small one-room cold water flat with high slanted ceilings and a skylight. The toilet was down the hall, and the area where I slept was separated from the rest of the room by a tall bookcase. My father's studio was in the same building. I remember roller skating around the block and down to Washington Square wearing steel skates that clamped to the Oxfords I hated to wear and the skate key on the shoelace around my neck. Yep, I had one of those. Some of those too. Shoelace around my neck. I was so rattled by the rough hebbly pavement that when I took the skates off I seemed to be floating. Oh, I remember that. Wow. This is amazing. I was terribly lonely there, I remember. More at ease with adults than with children. I didn't make friends readily. The disconnection of each school year made it it a hopeless proposition. I was always the new kid. Years later, I would sometimes catch myself bragging about how many different elementary schools I'd attended, hmm. As if that privish, privation were something to be proud of. How tough I was, how smart I was, how I always managed to get good grades anyway, but it was nothing to brag about. It was simply my way of managing adversity as opportunity transformed into a fear of endurance a feat of endurance sorry my father's needs always came first I never thought to question this it was axiomatic an article of faith my father had to help ha- my father had to be able to work in a piece in peace up in Woodstock for a long for as long as the weather permitted in New York during the winters, he had to feel free and unencumbered to come and go as he chose. And this took precedence over, my, over any longing I might have had for stability or consistency. Not that I made a fuss about it. Taking my cue from my mother, I specialized in flexibility. It wasn't until I was much older in high school, the same school for, the four, for four whole years all year long, familiar faces in the fall, a group of girlfriends for the first time, that I began to enjoy the time we spent in the city. Until then, I felt rather like Persephone, condemned to spend six months in Hades. My real life was in Woodstock. But in, the other, in other ways, life with my parents was very full. I was exposed to so much so early. My picture books were were the volumes of art and architecture my father had brought home with him from Italy, and his great pleasure at my interest prepared the ground for my own love of painting. I was taken to galleries and museums and foreign movies, to concerts and dance recitals. I listened to chamber music and jazz and poetry. I read voraciously. Most of all, I listened to the grown-ups talking, trying to follow the those marvelous, freewheeling, expansive conversations of the 50s that seemed to touch on everything. Talk about the newest Italian movie would lead into a discussion of 19th century French poetry and then move to some obscure point on the metaphysics of St. Augustine or... Locate a coro- corollary in the sc- Scuola Metaphysica. Someone would tell a joke about Joe McCarthy or Huac, H-U-A-C. Someone else would be raving about a newly discovered restaurant in Chinatown where the steamed bass and the black bean sauce was beyond description. There would be explosions of laughter around Another round of drinks, and finally everyone would get up to dance to a Mead Mead Lux Lewis record. Always at the center of this pastiche laughing and talking, dominated the evening, making the most cogent points and telling the best stories was my father. And I love knowing... I have to go through some pictures here. I'll have to come back, to. I loved knowing that, seeing the enormous attraction that he had for other people. Never a part of this myself, only only half following the conversation, I was completely captivated. I'd lie in bed later trying to remember what had been said, gorged with the thick pudding of talk that had been so richly studded with images and voices and ideas. My daily life was dull by comparison. Third and fourth grades, I went to the West Hurley Elementary School, a white frame schoolhouse about two miles from the Maverick Road. First through fourth grades were in one classroom, fifth through eighth grades in the other. My entire fourth grade class was left-handed, all four of us. Long hours and days were spent listening to the teacher, working with the little kids, it was at this school that I was mocked for the first, but by my, but by no means the last time for my name. I was mocked for the first time for my name by my vocabulary, my unflagging desire to please the teacher. Muselage, I was called, or moose, or even mus Huh. And once they knew my nickname, Ingi. A name I didn't like well enough to defend. I was called Inky or Stinky. Excuse me. One Halloween, I went to the school party in West Hurley as a wizard resplendent in costume my father had decorated for me. I wore an old muslin sheet and a tall conical hat covered with arcane symbols my father had painted staying up late the night before to complete the decoration. My mother, outraged that I didn't win any prizes, took me that same evening to the Woodstock party where she claims I did win a prize. My memory of the evening is of having a terrific stomach ache that kept me doubled over more than more witch than wizard, and of wishing I had store, a store-bought costume like the other kids. I was a large kid, not graceful or well-coordinated, too timid to be friendly, acting a bit like a know-it-all in class. Excuse me. There are painful memories of being chosen last for softball, stumbling out of bounds at hopscotch, or waiting my turn to enter the slapping jump rope, and the humiliation of it bringing it to the to a tangled halt each time I tried to jump in. I remember standing in a circle of kids at recess, the ringing hollow bounce of the red dodgeball, the thrill of fear I felt each time it was aimed at me. me. I was uneasy with other children. Their play was too rough or required too much agility or skill. They were the initiated. They knew things I didn't. Far into adulthood, it seemed to me that others possessed knowledge I didn't have. And competition frightened me. Something in my classmates' ease with one another, their taunting and showing off. And whim- whispered confidences always seemed foreign, beyond my reach. It was simpler to go off and play by myself. Not surprisingly, I found my refuge in books. I was an avid and early reader, devouring seven or eight library books a week throughout my childhood. I read rapidly, carelessly, anything I could get my my hands on, my brain on. Of particular fascination always were stories of families, especially large families, the Swiss family Robinson, the five little peppers, and how they grew. Excuse me. Such domesticity seemed mysterious, even exotic, to me. steering away from my previous format. I have been reading this book at night before I go to bed and (laughs) for some reason I'm getting drowsy and which is really good for me because I need to rest when I go to sleep and I have been getting better sleep. So I'm not going to stop reading before bed but I'm not sure it's Conducive, and I need to get this book read before it's due back at the library. So I'm going to try to do a few casts sitting in the studio, and then it inspired a new idea that I would do my podcast here on Anchor if I'm going to be reading. It would be studio readings, because they're all going to be about artist books and artist process and potentially even about the act of painting and the act of creating. So that's what my podcast is shifting to. It's taking me, been here since about March, taking me about six months to figure out what I really want to focus on with Anchor. My my lemur account is more about world events and daily events in my life as a painter, but I really think this Anchor format or platform could be used for me to read what I want to read about the work that I am involved in. My discovery. My discovery. Okay, so it's morning instead of evening and we left off with um I think we left off with uh Her finding refuge in books, which I also did as a child. Probably not as much as she was because she sounds well she was an only child, but also just because I had brothers and sisters to take care of when I was younger. So She went off and played by herself. She not surprisingly found her refuge in books. She was an avid and early reader devouring seven or eight library books a week throughout my childhood. I read rapidly. Caressingly, carelessly, or I read rapidly, carelessly, anything I could get my hands on. Of particular fascination always were stories of families, especially large families. The Swiss family Robinson, the five little peppers, and how they grew. Some dis- domesticity seemed mysterious, even exotic to me. So we read that. Let me see if I Yeah, I think this is where we left off. I didn't read back, go back and listen, so sorry. Television was was still then was television was still new then in the early 50s and exciting. Every day at school, the previous night's episode of Howdy Doody or Gunsmoke would be the topic of reso- recess conversations. I was terribly envious. My parents refused to buy a television until my senior year of high school. <laughs> Thinking with justification, if my own children are any proof, that I would stop reading and thinking for myself if I had a TV to watch, but I saw it differently then. One day in third grade, I finally got to do something that I imagined every other kid did all the time. I was invited to go to the home of one of the girls who lived in West Hurley to watch TV after school. I sort of remember this as an aside. I sort of remember we had to go to a babysitter's house after school when I was in, hmm, I think it was fourth and fifth grade. Is that what grade she's in? I don't know. Anyway, and... They had the TV on, we got snacks, and we got to watch some of those old Wild Wild West and the monkeys, and I don't know what else was on at the time, but this Gunsmoke was one of them. But I don't remember Howdy Doody, it was before my time. So anyway, she went to watch after TV after school. No one had ever asked me before, I had a clear memory of walking down. That ordinary street of small tract houses behind my classmate, of entering her kitchen with its faint odor of garbage, of the dim, drab cave of a living room, the rounded eye of the television springing to life, and of the hour or two I spent in rapt contemplation of silly animals doing violence to one another. (laughs) Weird. Weird. It wasn't only the cartoons that enthralled me, either. I was sunk in the vision of the family around the TV, her two brothers wrestling on the rug, teasing and poking at one another, her mother yelling at them to shut up from the kitchen where she was talking on the phone, all the give and take of normal domestic relations. True, the father wasn't home that afternoon. True, the father wasn't home that afternoon, but I could imagine him coming home from work, sitting there in his recliner, proud of his kids, an arm around his daughter and the youngest boy climbing on his lap. These people I barely knew seemed to be a real family in a way that my family was not. We were re- we were three related people, mother, father, daughter, living together, but not somehow a family. That afternoon, the children I was visiting pushed and shoved and teased and wrestled, acting up in all the ways that normal children do. How strange that they could be themselves, I thought. Children, not careful replicas of their parents. I never felt that freedom." Interesting, huh? For the few years that I, you know, this is an aside. I just had this thought, you know, how, how we all grow up so differently in different situations and we all seem how, somehow seem to manage, right? <laughs> um because I was thinking of my own time, of my mother being a single parent so early in my life. I mean, I was seven, yeah. And um, so, uh, yeah, uh, and we seemed to manage, you know. So I was seven and then I'm thinking about my grandchildren who have a mom that stays at home and they've never had mom go to work. And <clears throat> and how I look at them and I'm thinking we weren't much different even so, I don't know. It's just kind of a funny time when, you, when you're old enough to look back at that and see a whole nother, beyond your own bringing up of your own children. You know, because I think about my boys, They were 14 years apart, and I was thinking how different they were because they were both only children, in essence. Um, So, (laughs) and we all get along, and we all have had different experiences, but in different ways of family life. So, yeah, just an aside. Interesting. Interesting. So let's see. She'd never felt that freedom. For the few years that I was intensely interested in astronomy, I thought of families as constellations. My mother and father and I were like three distant stars, points on a triangle, far away but still connected to one another. Other families were more like star clusters, I thought, huddled close together like Pleiades. But ours is a Ours was a house of quiet separations, of closed doors, each of us retiring to work and think and read and and read alone. Hmm. Beyond the enforcement of privacy, there were few rules. To my parents, as far as I could tell, the very idea of family had always meant intrusion and interruption. Holiday celebrations were ordeals. It was impossible for me not to notice How my father reacted so much, so, sorry, it was impossible for me not to notice how my father reacted to such expectations, not to worry about becoming one of those obligations myself. When a car turned into the driveway, my father would run, calling out as he disappeared into his studio, tell them I'm not here, I'm not home. When the telephone rang, he'd be there, in the background, shaking his head emphatically with finger to his lips. No, my mother would say, Philip isn't here. (laughs) Toward the end of his life, my father's sense of burden, of the burden of family obligations. So now you'll hear all my daily interruptions that are coming outside my studio window. That's okay. No, my mother would say, Philip isn't here. Toward the end of his life, my father's sense of burden, of family obligations, came to extend far beyond his biological family to encompass all demands the world outside made upon his time and energies. Often during my visits in those later years, when I was working as a counselor in a community mental health agency in Ohio, he would take me into the studio, sit me down in a tall swivel chair at his drawing table. Ingie, he'd begin, I know you understand how difficult it is for me. <laughs> God, what a pressure on a child. I'm sorry. That's my editorializing. <laughs> and I would sit there and listen to him, flattered that he was confiding in me as he poured out his troubles. Oh, dear. Yes, I remember that. That happened to me with my dad. Ugh, I don't want to hear him talk about that. Anyway. As he poured out his troubles, invariably they revolved around his despair at the encroachment of the world on his privacy. (laughs) Oh, Oh, this is funny because we're having a discussion on Lemur about privacy. And well at least I am. (laughs) I know well there no people are because of the new Lemur app and its location settings and how it, the stats involved in the heat map it shows people where they are talking from so anyway that's the an, that's another conversation but i had to laugh this is in the 50s right <laughs> apparently they revolved around his despair hey robert if you're listening to this <laughs> this just proves pinker's point right It was still happening then. His despair at the encroachment of the world on his privacy. (laughs) Sorry, that was an aside. Okay. They, the people out there, dealers, collectors, university and museum people, students, were consuming him. Their demands were becoming unbearable. (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny. (laughs) It's just kind of funny that it comes up today after this discussion we've been having. But uh, But as I listened, an old, uneasy, provisional feeling of being inside the charmed circle of my father's awareness rose up in me. I knew it was true. How long would I have his attentions? Not that I had it then. It was always he who had my attention. That's in parentheses. It would last during that visit no longer. That is, until the trips until the next trip east, six months or a year later. During the intervening months my mother would intercept my calls. Philip was working, she'd say, or the phone would ring and ring. They would have unplugged it. Hmm. Ah yeah, I can relate to some of this. Okay, because of Philip's gift of intimacy, A friend of his commented recently, You always thought you were the one person in his universe, but then, two minutes later, it was someone else. It was true, but the beam of his gaze, the warmth of the encounter, were all enveloping at the time. He seemed so grateful to be understood. All I'd do was listen, maybe proffer a banal interpretation, some weak prop for his ego, and he would thank me profusely. Ingy listened to me ranting for hours he'd report later to my mother, shaking his head in wonder, she's so terrific. And I'd sit there and smile, soaking it up. And as my mother said not long ago, Philip was friends with whoever would listen to him. A pile of unanswered mail was always there on his desk, haunting him. Too selfish and too generous at the same time, he couldn't bring himself to answer all the letters, and he, wouldn't, and he couldn't bring himself not to. Overcome with guilt, he would finally sit down at his desk and answer a dozen or more at a time. In 1979, after his first heart attack, I helped him compose a letter, excuse me, I helped him compose a form letter to respond to the many requests that continued to pour in by mail and phone. I am a painter, the draft began. <laughs> where I where I sorry, were I to respond to every letter sent to me, I would never have time for my work. End quote. After he died, I found this neatly typed on my mother's old Smith Corona. He had kept the letter but never used it. Hmm. during my during most of my neighbor sorry i don't know why i'm having trouble this morning during most of my childhood my parents had two groups of friends those who lived in woodstock year round or as we did some some years late spring to early fall and those who lived in new york city a large group of artists made their home temporary or permanent in Woodstock, among them Fletcher Martin, a big, gruff Texan my father had known since early California WPA days, Herman Cherry, and a number of other painters, among them Wendell Jones, Carl, For- Carl Fortress, Fortis, sorry, Yasuo Kuni- Kuniyoshi, Eddie Millman, Arnold Blanche, and Doris Lee. Raoul Haig, an irascible Armenian eccentric who has been a neighbor for over 40 years, still lives year-round in his wood stove heated cabin next door with his collection of clocks of every kind, all ticking and chiming at once, and his 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica bound in Masonite. Hmm. Raul is a carver of large, sinuous torsos with names like Ohio, Ohio spelled O-H-A-Y-O, Ohio Mountain Butternut, and Bearsville Walnut, after the woods of their origin. It's probably Ohio. Sometimes he and my father were on speaking terms. Often they were not. When they weren't, Six months or more could go by without a passing without a word passing between them. It was laughable. These two stubborn men stumping around their property, ignoring one another then suddenly there would be recon- be a reconciliation. Why was never any? sorry, then suddenly there would be a reconciliation. Why was never any more clear than the reasons for the rift in the first place, and to celebrate my father would continue, would cook, and to celebrate my father would cook dinner with Raul. Sorry, I think the reason I have trouble with some of her sentences is because she tends to use hyphens a lot. Um, And I do, I remember doing, I do that in my writing too. I've become more writing with commas than hyphens anymore, but um, it's instead of parentheses, basically, it's another thought. You know, like, for instance, this one. Then suddenly there would be reconciliation. If I continue to read without the part in hyphen, it would say this. Then suddenly there would be a reconciliation, and to celebrate, my father would cook dinner for Raul. So you basically get another thought of hers in between the the sentence itself so here is the full sentence with the hyphenated part then suddenly there would be a reconciliation why was never any more clear than the reasons for the rift in the first place and to celebrate my father would cook dinner for Raul so it's sometimes trips me up when I'm reading it so I apologize for that but that's how the writing is I remember dancing at night to flute music on the pine needles outside his house. When we visit Raoul now, he represents us with wooden spoons as he carved or small, small toy birds set in odd pedestals of wood and broken wineglass stems. Stepping into his cabin has always been like entering one of Joseph Cornell's boxes. For quite a number of years, my parents' best friends in Woodstock were the writer Robert Phelps and his wife, Rosemary Beck who later gave me violin lessons. After working all day, the two couples would get together in the evenings for food and drink and conversation. Beckett and Gannett, or Gannet, and Sartre, Sartre, I don't never know how to pronounce Sartre's name. Sartre, I know who he is. Rilke and Auden. I should look that up. I'm going to stop here because it's been 19 minutes of reading and I think I still have several pages to finish. Oh yes, this is a long chapter. Oh my gosh, it's really long. It's another, whatever, 20 pages. So I will stop here for now.